Hello, and welcome to Grand Dukes of the West, Supplemental 6, The Rapondi Company and Ducal Finance. I've been mentioning the Rapondi here and there throughout the series so far, usually with the note that I'll cover them in more detail later. Well, now it's later. Unfortunately, my timing is pretty poor, as the Rapondi family largely exit our story around this time. But I still think it's worth exploring the family, their business, and their relationship with the Dukes of Burgundy, as well as the wider world of medieval finance. In this episode, I'll be mainly drawing on Bart Lambert's book, The City, the Duke, and Their Banker. This book is a fantastic look at the Rapondi company, family, and their business with the Dukes. So if this episode leaves you wanting more, I suggest checking out The City, the Duke, and Their Banker. So who were the Rapondi? They were a rich merchant family from the Italian city of Lucca, and by the time our story begins, they were the second or third most powerful family in the politics of the city. Records of their business dealings in France exist going back to the 1290s, and the Rapondi, along with a few other Lucchese merchants, established a company in Bruges in the 1340s. The Rapondi reached their height in service to Philip the Bold and John the Fearless. And during this period of preeminence, the head of the family was Dino Rapondi. Dino made a fortune by loaning to the Dukes of Burgundy, and those loans powered the government, court, army, and household of the first two Valois Dukes of Burgundy. Richard Vaughan even writes, quote, Behind the political power of Philip the Bold was the wealth of Dino Rapondi. But before we get to all that, I want to take a look at the market of Bruges, one of the main bases of the Rapondi company. At this point, Bruges was a major center of trade and commerce. It had been a notable market town since the 1100s, but as European trade shifted from primarily land-based routes to sea-based routes, Bruges' placement on the intersection of those routes allowed its importance as a market to grow immensely. The city hosted German Hanseatic merchants selling goods from the Baltic, Spanish and Gascon merchants selling iron and wine, Italian merchants selling goods from the east, and of course, English merchants selling wool. In exchange, these merchants picked up what else but Flemish cloth. By the 14th century, foreign merchants dominated the commerce of Bruges, with the bourgeois themselves primarily taking on the role of broker. They would introduce buyers and sellers and officiate deals. Most of the foreign merchants of Bruges only resided in the city seasonally, so apart from simply facilitating deals, the brokers of Bruges provided their clients with invaluable information on the state of the market. And along with commerce came capital. So many of the merchants and brokers of Bruges also began to lend their money to other merchants, residents of the city, and even to the city itself and to the Count of Flanders. These loans could take many forms. The most common were fairly simple, small, short-term loans between people who knew each other well. But eventually, a system of credit developed, allowing bills of exchange to begin circulating in Bruges. The bill of exchange was, at its core, an IOU, and was especially useful for long-distance trading. Rather than lugging coins and precious metals around, a bill of exchange allowed a merchant to issue a writ ordering one of their agents to pay the bearer of the bill a certain amount of money, making trade much easier. For example, 
A German merchant from Lübeck could issue a bill of exchange well in Bruges to purchase some cloth. The seller of that cloth could then trade the bill of exchange to another Hanseatic merchant who was selling timber, and when that merchant returned to Germany, he could redeem the bill of exchange with the original Lübecker merchant. A certain degree of trust was required for bills of exchange to function, because if someone had a reason to believe that a bill of exchange wouldn't be honored, then, all of a sudden, that bill was only worth the paper or parchment it was printed on. So bills of exchange tended to mostly circulate through established networks of merchants who had regular contact with each other. But the bill of exchange could also be used by institutions. In this era, Italian banks were beginning to take off, and some of the larger ones had branches in multiple cities. So for example, if you were traveling from Venice to Bruges in the 1440s, you could deposit some Venetian ducats with the Medici bank and pick up a bill of exchange. Then, once you reached the Low Countries, you could redeem that bill of exchange at the Medici Bank's Bruges branch for Flemish groats. Therefore, travelers wouldn't have to worry about converting their currency when they reached their destination, or carrying money with them on the road, where they could be robbed. In exchange, the bank got to play exchange rates to try and turn a profit. Bills of exchange could also act as loans, and, as we just saw, by manipulating exchange rates, they could even contain some form of improvised interest. It was important that the interest be hidden because of the church's ban on it. That being said, the practice of charging interest was not uncommon by this point. But, for those worried about their souls, there were many other ways that lenders could disguise the practice. One of the most common forms of this was pretty simple but it did require a good and long-standing relationship between lender and borrower. Essentially, the lender could simply expect to receive gifts from the borrower on occasion in addition to their loan repayments. These gifts weren't written into borrowing contracts and were mostly given with a wink and a nod. Another way that interest could be simulated was when one party bought goods on credit and then turned around and immediately sold them at a loss sometimes back to the party that the goods originally came from. So in the end, the borrower owed the lender some amount of money, and in exchange got a smaller amount on hand. And there were many other methods which a clever merchant banker could use to skirt around the church's ban on charging interest. After all, there was money to be made. Now let's get to know the Rapondi and see how they made their way into the world of ducal finance. As I said earlier, the Rapondi Company existed in Bruges since the 1340s, but at first, their operation was a relatively minor one. We should also note that the Rapondi Company was not a bank, but a trading firm. Before it became integrated with the Burgundians, its main line of business was providing the nobles and rich burghers of France with fine silks and other goods from Italy and the eastern Mediterranean. With a presence in both Bruges and Lucca, the Rapondi family were part of a vast trading network, which included not only Flemish and Lucchese merchants, but also other Italians, as well as French, Dutch, and Hanseatic merchants. This network, based on personal and professional relationships, allowed the Rapondi to access lines of credit, which in turn allowed them to fund their merchant ventures. It also gave them access to valuable business information such as exchange rates and spikes in demand for a given good in a given location. So while I will be focusing on this one family, the Rapondi did not make their fortunes alone. 
and at every step they had partners outside of their family. The Rapandi had dealings with the nobles of the Low Countries for years, but these deals tended to be with the middling nobility. Their first regular connection with the high nobility came from Yolanda of Flanders, also sometimes known as Yolanda of Kassel, the regent of the Duchy of Bar. Yolanda was a cousin of Louis of Mala, and was the wonderful combination, at least from a merchant banker's perspective, of a lover of luxury and terminally in debt. Yolanda's first business with the Rapandi was likely related to the former of the two, as she often made purchases from the merchants of Bruges. And in the mid-1360s, she began to rely on the Rapandi to help her with the latter as well. To deal with her debts, the Lady of Kassel often pawned her jewels and other valuables, and in 1364 she went to Dino Rapandi for help in redeeming one of her crowns and a collection of other precious items. The Lucchese merchant agreed to help, and before long, Yolanda was coming to the Rapandi for loans on a regular basis. These loans could range from relatively small sums to cover the day-to-day -day expenses of the Duchess's court, to very large ones, such as when Yolanda of Flanders needed help paying for her son's ransom. In this period, the Rapandi both gave out loans to Yolanda directly, and acted as brokers by helping to arrange for other members of their network to front the money to her. For example, the Rapandi didn't directly give Yolanda any money for the ransom of her son. Rather, they introduced her to some of their fellow merchants who ended up fronting the cost. The Rapandi negotiated the terms of interest and repayment, and over the next few years, they received payments from the Lady of Kassel, which in turn, they passed along to the men who had lent the money in the first place. Sometimes, when Yolanda was extra short on cash, the Rapandi would loan her money to pay her other creditors so that her credit didn't collapse. Throughout the 1360s and 70s, the Rapandi eased the flow of money and goods into Yolanda's coffers, and while she was often slow with repayment, she did provide the Lucchese merchants with lucrative interest rates. That being said, the relationship between the bankers and the noble was not always smooth, as she did challenge the Rapandi's demands for repayment on multiple occasions, and on a few outright refused to pay when they could not provide satisfactory documentation. While some of their transactions may have ended poorly, the relationship was overall profitable for the company. And this relationship had another benefit as well, as it was likely through Yolanda that the Rapandi first came into contact with Philip the Bold. The first known transaction between Philip the Bold and a Rapandi was when Guglielmo Rapandi, Dino's older brother, lent the Duke of Burgundy 3,000 francs to help pay the sum that Louis of Malle demanded for his daughter Margaret's hand in 1369. From there, a lucrative relationship between the Rapandi and the Dukes of Burgundy began. This relationship had both financial and mercantile aspects, as Philip also purchased silks, jewels, and other finery from the Rapandi company for his wedding and during his stay in Flanders after the ceremony. At this point, the Rapandi were well-established in Bruges, and their company was relatively large, given the capital that they managed to muster for Philip. However, they were not among the largest trading firms or banking houses of Bruges. They still had plenty of room to grow their business, and now that they had established a relationship with the Duke of Burgundy, opportunities to do just that would be coming quickly. Bart Lambert writes, quote, 
The commercial transactions with the duke that they could realize on the days following the wedding ceremony dwarfed all their former operations, and the loan of 3,000 francs that helped bring about the event was probably the biggest credit they had ever issued. Guglielmo Rapondi likely saw a great opportunity in his family's relationship with Philip the Bold, but he would not get to see its result, as he died not long after Philip's wedding. His brother Dino now took over as head of the Rapondi company, and it was under him that the family business would reach its zenith. Despite the family's promising start in Bruges, Dino made the decision to move the company's headquarters to Paris in 1371. This move was a risky one, but built upon the already fruitful relationship between the Rapondi and Philip the Bold. And this move paid off. As the 1370s went on, the Rapondi supplied more and more goods to the Duke of Burgundy. Gold, jewels, silks, furs, books, and other finery were acquired for Philip the Bold in ever greater quantities. And by 1380, the Lucchese merchants were his primary suppliers of luxury goods. As Philip the Bold lived in a time where the nobility didn't worry about budgeting or where their money came from, Many of these purchases were made on credit. Philip's lavish tastes made him a regular borrower, and his vast resources made him a reliable borrower. As the relationship between the duke and the merchants matured, he began to rely on the Rapondi more and more as a source of credit, and he made sure that his favorite bankers always got back what was owed to them. Philip's patronage of the Rapondi went further than simply going to the family for luxury goods and loans. Bart Lambert writes that Philip the Bold, quote, was an indispensable link between the company and the rest of the royal family, not only making possible contacts with Dino and his brothers, but also intervening in their favor and guaranteeing them fast repayments. With these services and the continuous chain of orders and other requests with which he gave work to the company, he was largely responsible for the fast climb of the Rapondi who in ten years rose from fairly unexceptional merchants in the court of the Countess of Bar to one of the most important suppliers of the kings of France and the whole royal family. In turn, the Rapondi became loyal Burgundian partisans, and we can see a good example of how they served Philip's interests while also making a tidy sum for themselves in Avignon. In the early years of the Western Schism, Philip the Bold was a major supporter of the Avignon Papacy, and so, while the city of Lucca declared for Rome, the Lucchese Rapondi merchants followed their patron in supporting Avignon. And their support was far from being purely moral. The Rapondi became key members of the Avignon papacy's financial apparatus. Paris was a major hub of tithe collection, and a significant portion of the Avignon papacy's total income was funneled through the French capital. But getting that money to Avignon was no simple task. It was a fairly long and not entirely safe journey from Paris to Avignon. So, having financial agents facilitate the flow of funds was vital. Dino Rapondi was based in Paris, and his brother Andrea moved to Avignon and founded a new branch of the Rapondi company there in the early 1380s. Over the next few years, the Rapondi brothers became the Avignon papacy's principal financiers. Dino would receive the tithes from Paris and quickly pen a bill of exchange to his brother, which could travel far quicker than wagons of gold. 
Within days of collection, the Avignon Papacy would have access to the money. As the Avignon Papacy was constantly short on money, the speed of the Rapandi credit network was key to its survival, as was the scale of their operation. For example, in one day in 1385, Andrea Rapandi managed to cash out bills of exchange worth a total of 8,000 florins, a huge sum that only a handful of other merchant bankers at the time could have managed on short notice. Between 1381 and 1395, almost 110,000 florins passed through the Rapandi company to Avignon, which was over 30% more than their closest competitor managed to transfer. And the Rapandi company did not only transfer money for Avignon, they also made direct loans to the pontiff on numerous occasions. The relationship between the Rapandi and the papacy was extremely lucrative for the family. While the church officially condemned the practice of charging interest on loans, the competition between the papacies of Avignon and Rome meant that some rules would have to be bent. Therefore, gifts were repeatedly given to the Rapandi for the services that they provided, all told worth tens of thousands of florins. The Rapandi company's best years in Avignon were in the early 1380s. When Philip the Bold became Count of Flanders in 1384, his support of the Avignon papacy began to waver, and his favorite bankers began to do less business with Avignon. As Philip's opinion of the Avignon papacy fell further throughout the 1390s, and he began to actively encourage both popes to step down, the Rapandi's business with the papacy dried up, and the partnership between the Rapandi and Avignon was over by 1395. While Avignon was a cash cow, the Rapandi were Burgundy's men through and through by this point. They had initially gone into business with Avignon to further the Duke of Burgundy's aims, and they ended their business with Avignon for the same reason. Besides, with Philip the Bold now Count of Flanders and a whole host of other counties, the Rapandi family gained a load of new responsibilities and opportunities. When Philip became the Count of Flanders, Dino Rapandi got new titles as well, Ducal Councillor and Maitre d'Hôtel, and became a part of Philip's Flemish Commodal Council. Not only did Dino Rapandi and his family loan money to Philip, but they now also acted as financial advisors and guarantors when the Duke took out loans from other merchants or purchased goods on credit. And now the Rapandi's loans to Philip the Bold took on a slightly more official role, and the Duke of Burgundy would go to his favorite bankers on a more regular basis. Philip the Bold took out loans from the Rapandi to get immediate funding for both day-to-day -day expenses and big projects. And in exchange, the Rapandi could insert themselves directly into Philip's vast network of ducal receivers to recover their capital. They even began acting as intermediaries to facilitate the transfer of funds from local receivers to regional receivers to the receiver general. And if all this talk of receivers is confusing for you, I'd suggest revisiting episode 11, Foundations of a State, for more information on the Burgundian financial system. The Rapandi were a central part of Philip's financial administration and took a leading role in financing some of his biggest expenditures, including the 1385 double wedding at Cambrai, which joined the houses of Valois Burgundy and Bavaria together, Philip's monetary offensive against Brabant, 
the Nicopolis Crusade, and John the Fearless's ransom after the Nicopolis Crusade fell apart. When Philip ordered the construction of the Tour de Bourgogne, a castle guarding Bruges Harbor at Slaus, Dino Rapondi not only financed its construction, he was also made the project's overseer. In order to recoup his financial investment, he received income from three sources, the Duke's central treasury, the royal treasury, as Philip had convinced Charles VI that the project would help protect Flanders from the English, and the city of Bruges itself. And with these new responsibilities, the Rapondi began to roll back their merchant ventures. Throughout the 1380s, if you received a gift of silks, velvet, satin, gold, jewels, books, or other luxuries from Philip the Bold, there was a good chance that it was initially procured by the Rapondi. But in the 1390s, they shifted their focus to finance. While their merchant ventures were still profitable, there was more money to be made and influence to be gained by serving the Duke of Burgundy in other ways. The relationship between the Duke and the Rapondi even allowed the family to use some of Philip's political leverage. When the family's assets in Lucca were seized by a rival political faction, Philip bought those assets from the Rapondi and then demanded that Lucca return his property or he would seize its value from other Lucchesa merchants in his territories with links to the faction. The rival faction caved and the assets were returned. Now, let's talk about the Rapondi's relationship with Bruges for a bit, as it was almost as important to the family as their relationship with Philip the Bold was. I won't go into quite as much detail as Bart Lambert does in his book The City, the Duke, and Their Banker, but it is worth exploring the triangular relationship between the three parties. For the most part, Dino Rapondi stayed in Paris with Philip, but his brother Filippo and nephew Giovanni returned to Bruges and set up shop there. On several occasions, Philip the Bold, and later John the Fearless, managed to raise large aids or extraordinary taxes from Bruges. And while the city was one of the richest in Europe at the time, it rarely had the funds available to pay for the Duke's requests immediately. Therefore, the Rapondi would send money to the Duke of Burgundy on Bruges' behalf, and in exchange, they were given the right to collect various taxes that the city could impose on its citizens and traders. The Rapondi also performed this duty with some of Bruges' regular taxes to the duke. The family had access to vast funds which could be lent out, and their commercial and financial network allowed them to act as brokers when loans from other merchant bankers were needed. Their now long-standing relationship with Philip the Bold and their deep pockets made them perfect candidates to handle the all-important task of transferring money from the rich city to the demanding duke. They were not the only merchant bankers to fill this role, but they were the most prominent. And on occasion, this relationship went the other way, with Philip ordering Bruges to pay the Rapondi directly when he owed them money for the other various loans he received from the family. By lending to both the duke and the city, the Rapondi eased the financial relationship between them and could make funds available to both when needed. And by acting as ducal representatives with a base in Bruges, the Rapondi could act as intermediaries between the city and the central Burgundian government. The Lucchese family made a fortune by filling this niche. They received gifts from both the city and the duke in exchange for their loans, 
and, on occasion, were able to charge interest directly. And they also received gifts when they intervened with one on the other's behalf. Furthermore, as ducal officials, they received exemptions from certain taxes on imports to Bruges, making their trading ventures, while now reduced, even more profitable. Bart Lambert writes, quote, They were an indispensable element, without which the cash flow between Bruges and Philip the Bold simply could not have taken place. If the Rapandi had not provided the city with money, the latter would never have been able to meet the financial needs of the Duke. Bruges' need for capital, caused by a combination of its complacence towards the Duke's requests and the eagerness with which Philip took advantage of that complacence, did not disappear after 1398. Time after time, this would make the city approach Dino Rapandi, whose financial indispensability only increased. And this indispensability did not end when Philip the Bold died. John the Fearless knew that the Rapandi were responsible for financing his ransom after Nicopolis, and so trusted the Rapandi as much, if not more, than his father did. When the old duke died, the Rapandi jumped into action to both finance the funeral of their great patron and provided the fine cloths that the mourning clothes and funeral shroud were made of. So from day one, the Rapandi were loaning to John the Fearless. The family financed almost all of John's major ventures and maintained their positions as counselors and officials. They helped to fund his invasion of Liège, which climaxed with the Battle of Oti, and they took part in the collection of the indemnity that the Liègeois paid to John and William of Bavaria. They negotiated with the members of Flanders over aids and helped to transfer aid payments from the cities of Flanders to the Duke. And Dino Rapandi was almost certainly involved in the decision to assassinate the Duke of Orléans. When the civil war began, loans from the family went a long way in keeping the Burgundian army paid and supplied, and their ability to transfer taxes from John's subjects to the Duke's coffers did much of the rest. As the civil war ramped up, the Rapandi's importance to the Duke only increased, as did John's need for money. And as Bruges was so wealthy, it began to be squeezed for funds by John the Fearless, and the hand doing the squeezing tended to be the Rapandi. John demanded more and more from Bruges, and the city was required to take out ever-increasing loans, often from the Rapandi. And as those loans piled up, more and more money went to the bankers. To facilitate this increased role in Bruges, Dino Rapandi moved from Paris back to Flanders, where he joined Philip of Charolais's council there. The brief revolt of Bruges that Philip of Charolais had to deal with in 1411 was as much a revolt against the city's debt to the Rapandi as anything else, and there were even calls to confiscate the Rapandi assets in Bruges. But a settlement was reached that left the Rapandi with their assets, and both the Duke of Burgundy and the Rapandi continued to extract money from Bruges over the next few years. Dino Rapandi and his family continued to work on the Duke of Burgundy's behalf as the civil war raged and grew ever more expensive, but Dino himself would die before its end. The head of the Rapandi family, who had brought it to such heights, died in early 1415 after decades of service to the Dukes of Burgundy. The death of Dino heralded significant change in the Rapandi company. The Bruges and Paris branches were officially split into separate entities, 
although they still worked closely together, and the central role that the Rapandi played in the Burgundian administration diminished. The Rapandi remained important financiers, but now others took the lead in financing the Burgundian government and the Burgundian faction in France. Filippo Rapandi, now in charge of the company, decided to shift away from the risky endeavors of war and ducal finance and invested in land and other, safer financial ventures. Between 1384 and 1415, the Rapandi took part in almost every project that the Dukes of Burgundy pursued, and their roles in the ducal government were multifaceted. They were lenders, advisors, officials, brokers, and more. They helped to fund the day-to-day -day function of the Burgundian government, they helped to implement monetary policies, and they helped the dukes pay for their major undertakings. After 1415, the Rapandi still popped up from time to time, but no longer were they wearing so many hats, and no longer did they fund such a large portion of the Burgundian project. Other bankers will find success with the Dukes of Burgundy going forward, such as the Medici, as the Rapandi, who did so much to establish the power of the House of Valois-Burgundy, retired from the high-stakes world of ducal finance. Thank you so much to my patrons, with a special thanks to my newest patron, Ian Kraft von Arenberg, and also to Christine, Duchesse de Namur, Peter, Duke de Brassion, Elliot, Kraft von Kravenstein, Anthony, Comte de Chateauneuf-Nuxois, James, Kraft von Tensa, Preston, Comte de Saint-Fargo, Marc, Comte de Mirceau, Diana, Kraft von Biersel, Mehmet, Comte Saint-Terre, Chris, Comte de Seymour, David, Kraft von Bornem, Rosa, Comte de Germol, Elliot, Comte de Bussy-Legrand, Quinton, Kraft von Blasfeld, Tyler, Comte de Chamaret, and to my Knights of the Duchy. If you want to join them, you can at patreon.com slash Burgundy. If you want to support the podcast in other ways, you can do so by leaving a review on your podcast app of choice and telling your friends about the show. Both really help to grow the show and will earn you my everlasting appreciation. If you want to keep up with the show, you can follow me at Valois Burgundy on Twitter or Blue Sky, or find Grand Dukes of the West on Facebook. You can also email me at granddukesofthewest at gmail.com and check out the podcast website for maps, images, sources, and more at granddukesofthewest.com. Once again, thank you for listening.